you Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. And welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And today we're going to look at the birth of science in a double episode that, again, we will cut in half for easier production. Charlie's Angel, who could just as easily be called the Data Demon, will be our guest for both episodes. The birth of science is obviously a vital part of the story of the miracle. And I want to get this in before we leave the religious episodes too far behind, because religion comes into it too. And later we'll talk about how religion contributed to individualism, uh, which I think will surprise some people. The consensus view is that science as we understand it today suddenly started in the 17th century, or you could lean back a little before to Copernicus and Tycho Brahe. This seems faintly ridiculous to historians who are used to the idea of continuity and things moving gradually, that sharp breaks are truly rare, and yet I find myself unable to refute the consensus. I will try to improve on some of the traditional texts in some small ways. Judge for yourself whether that works. That'll include what happened to Galileo's and Bruno's prosecutor and the necessity for the church to defend itself hopelessly against science because of their insistence on the magic of the mass against Luther. I'm writing this when I'm in an unusually bad mood, like a grumpy mood. Probably something trivial about how I slept and woke up, but watch out. You see, a radical change did occur. Finally, someone was determined enough to keep sailing west from Europe and not give up in 1492. All these subsequent voyages of discovery resulted in letters. Letters were printed and people read avidly. And this happened after the printing press. How handy. So a German guy, an excellent cartographer, not just some guy, Martin Waldersee Müller, could have the sudden insight that what all these Italian and Iberian voyagers had done was discover a new continent, which he decided to name America. And he decided it was time to produce the world's first globe. Until 1507, it could be argued that the Spanish and Portuguese were just on the other side of the East Indies in some way. Certainly Columbus had never figured out he had discovered a new hemisphere. Nevertheless, the voyages of Columbus were one of those sharp, dramatic events that set in motion the very idea that discovery was a thing that people could do and do it deliberately and systematically. But you don't just wake up one day and say, I'll start discovering things. It took a long time for the concept of discovery as we have it today to percolate through the thick matting of scholastic university training after more practical people made important breakthroughs. This will be a triumph of engineering and invention. Francis Bacon in the early 17th century was the first to call out for this practical process to replace what had been understood as knowledge previously. Knowledge based on authority rather than experience or experimentation. While it isn't true that universities produced nothing, there was Wycliffe and Buridan. Basically, they were unable to contribute to the Baconian program of deliberate scientific discovery. Religion comes into it because of Martin Luther and the Catholic reaction, the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation enjoyed burning heretics. Tie him to a stake and light that puppy on fire. 
And this is just as science was getting started, perhaps as the unplanned child of engineering. Here we have the church, and the church means Catholic church, the papacy mainly, was in a mood to assert its claims to define reality. And this meant that many of the most talented people in the world were subject to the church, and that the church would deform the early progress of science. It's no accident that much of the early progress, the initial excitement, happened in Protestant lands outside the reach of the Inquisition. Would you say there was an inverse correlation with scholastic teaching? Well, sure, that's tempting and statistically true, but only because essentially everywhere was on the scholastic program and the Catholic countries had more universities. Because the medieval institutions were poorly placed by virtue of their beliefs in what education was, universities were initially a drag on progress rather than an encouragement of the scientific impulse. Now, much to my annoyance, all of the books on the beginnings of science have to waste time on what words like discovery, science, observations, and experimentation mean. As Hanging with History listeners, you already have the idea that words are not like mathematical symbols in an equation. They just aren't. The early science we're talking about, the scientific project, is the one that figured out what the solar system is like, the nature of light, that gravity exists, what the laws of motions are, that there's a microscopic world, that illusions and superstitions like the unchanging heavens, the element quintessence, and perfect circular orbits are false. One way to state this is that this is the noble pursuit of truth elevating the establishment of facts and true understanding above all other social considerations. And some will argue that this is somewhat naive, but I have little patience for the idea that relativism, at least the extreme version of it, that says that facts are a social construction only, and that science is one way of knowing that the West has established and other societies have other ways of knowing. Not that there's zero truth value, but that it represents a step back into scholasticism. I'm basically arguing that a lot of relativism born out of French postmodernism essentially represents a step back into scholasticism. The effectiveness of using social construction, though, really depends on the specific scientific field that you're studying. It's a lot more useful to use social construction in certain social sciences than it is in some of the harder sciences because of what social construction represents. So for example, if you're researching about, say, sexualities, our current definition of different sexualities has been invented within the past however many years, and it didn't really apply in the same way, historically speaking, because the concepts around sexuality were socially constructed themselves. Rather than get into word games and pull in Wittgenstein, I want to say that the relativism and postmodernism that treats science as a social construction is far more wrong than it is right, and we are going to ignore it. We will pay some attention to the monkey element, which is so interesting, the priority disputes that colors so much history of science, Leibniz versus Newton, for example, but that's just one. And what it means is that science and discovery came out of nowhere to be a thing of the very highest status. 
And that is truly fascinating. It used to be, if you wanted immortality, get an army together and conquer a bunch of places. Now all you needed to do was make a discovery. I love how David Wooten puts it about the relativists. Quote, Actually, the proponents of the strong program treat the empiricist language game of Galileo as if it were one of a number of equally false language games. For the only valid game, in their eyes, is the Wittgensteinian metagame. Everyone is limited by language, except those who write about how everyone is limited by language. But there's no need to linger over this fatal flaw. Unquote. What Galileo said caused consternation, not how he said it. So the relativists deny that there can be perception independent of enunciation and that the idea of agreement with reality does not have clear application by itself. So with that logical argument from me and that argument from authority where I evoke David Wooten, which is cheating, but this is a humble podcast, let's tell the relativists to take their narrow truths and stuff them. And yet we can't. Really, can we? When you read Wittgenstein, you feel like you're communing with one of the greatest minds of all time. And people do have to agree on things like the practical process of discovery and engineering. And they have to agree that science is a thing we want and find a way to fund it. And people have to agree that experience and experiment is superior to ancient truths. And how does that happen? We had whole episodes on the modus tenendum parliamentum and how that mad dream helped create one of the greatest institutions of the age, Parliament. And we covered how this process of agreement allowed Magna Carta to become the foundation of the British Constitution through a process of pretending it created a constitutional peace, bred of Lutheranism, Calvinism, the impulse to educate everyone, are all further examples. So we have to give the weak form of the relativist argument its due. Okay, on common understanding, that's it for now. So we have a scientific project that systematically employs the test of experience, and we have to make a stop in the intellectual territory of episode 20 that emphasize the importance of engineering, how theories and ideas need to be translated to something that actually works in the physical world and often precedes theoretical knowledge. This leads to an expansion of theoretical knowledge that can lead to further inventions and discoveries in a virtuous circle. The invention of the telescope in the early 17th century, around maybe 1607 by some probably Dutch unknown inventor, was the key step and a great example of the virtuous circle. Galileo saw a telescope in 1608 or so, and he improved it. He was an excellent engineer, which enabled him to be a great scientist. His telescope was so improved by 1611 that he made observations that completely overthrew much of the view of the universe that the church held sacred. More on that later. A partial summary of the birth of science is available by just describing the Copernican Revolution. Copernicus. You want to hear a Copernicus joke? Uh, sure. You may remember Copernicus asked, Hey, what if the earth went around the sun? The Catholic Church answered, Hey, what if we set you on fire? Copernicus did <laughs> Copernicus did hesitate to say anything. 
about the earth rotating and revolving around the sun. He, he was a genius with accomplishments in the fields of economics, uh, quantity theory of money, uh, which is still solid, by the way, the first statement of Gresham's Law, and he also further advanced trigonometry. His dangerous idea was that if we assume the earth rotates once per day and revolves around the sun once per year, we can better explain, though still not perfectly, the astronomical data we have. He shared this with friends in manuscript form, but was personally unwilling to publish. He feared religious controversy, some of which could be very warm, crackle, 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 and ridicule from high-status Aristotelians who dominated intellectual life. He would be telling absolutely everyone they were wrong. So he waited until he was on his deathbed to officially publish in 1543. And when the Counter-Reformation got around to creating an index of banned books, Copernicus was put on the index. Next in our story is Tycho Brahe, a Dane. He saw his life's work as correcting all the astronomical errors of measurement that existed, and there were many. He developed far better instruments and reduced common errors by a factor of 10. He was on the organized engineer side of things. He became famous for observing a supernova. He called it a nova for new star in the constellation Cassiopeia and publishing a monogram about it in 1572. Well, the Aristotelian Catholic view of the universe did not admit new stars. You see, the heavens were perfect, created by God. Imperfection was the work of the devil down here on earth, and perfect things do not change. So, the Inquisition wanted a word with him, so he was invited to Rome. Come on, Tycho, come to Rome, we'll have a nice chat. Fortunately, Tycho was in Denmark, which was Lutheran by then, and the king did not care if the Jesuits wanted to take Tycho to Rome. So Tycho was allowed to work without hindrance from religious authorities. He finally had to move to Prague for financial reasons later in life, where, where his young pupil, Johannes Kepler, would make good use of Tycho's observations. Meanwhile, back in Elizabethan England, William Harvey was discovering the circulation of the blood, and William Gilbert, also a physician, was studying lodestones, what we now call magnetite and the properties of magnetism. He discovered that the earth is a sort of magnet, which he figured out when he saw that, that compass needles dip when they point to the magnetic north. His most provocative idea was that the planets were held in place by some sort of magnetism. In England, he, too, was safe from the Inquisition. A few times I said Protestantism helped drive human progress through driving literacy. Some anthropologists maintain, however, that commercial society is a more important variable than Protestantism in driving literacy. But clearly, a complex phenomenon like literacy has to be multivariate. But here you can see more directly and simply how Protestantism allowed early scientific pioneers to thrive more easily, since they weren't looking over their shoulders at what the Inquisition would think about all their work. And they weren't thinking about being set on fire. And back in Prague, Kepler provided three laws of planetary motion that blew up the old Aristotelian world. 
though it was left to Galileo to actually prove them. Okay, you got that? Kepler provided the laws, but Galileo provided the proof. The first law was that the planets move around the sun in an ellipse rather than a circle. The second law specifies that planetary orbits sweep equal areas in equal time. And what this means is that the planet has to be going faster when it's closer to the sun and slower when it is farther away. And this brilliant insight was a major inspiration to Newton, who would explain why, and that this applies to all bodies and movement in fields of force, not just planets. The third law was the mathematical relationship between the period of the planets and their distance from the sun. He never realized what holds planets in their orbits and makes their speeds change, but he did recognize it was something, probably, like Gilbert's idea of action at a distance. Then Galileo, the first of the early greats to live in a Catholic-dominated country. And Charles Van Doren says he was the first modern man to truly understand that mathematics can truly describe the physical world. He famously said, The book of nature is written in mathematics. Ah, apologies. He accepted Burden's revision of Aristotle with the idea of force implied by impetus. That's score one for the philosophers, then. Buridan was a philosopher. You can't argue philosophers were useless in the Copernican Revolution. I wouldn't dream of it. It's obvious what's coming, though. The Copernican Revolution overthrew Aristotelian physics. A lot of Aristotle bashing usually goes along with it. No science would be possible, though, without Aristotle's notion that things are what they objectively are. But I did say in episode 29 that we are still seeing the playing out of the tension between Platonic and Aristotelian assumptions. The very act of demolishing Aristotelian physics is upholding Aristotle's A equals A formulation. A thing is what it objectively is. And we have more Galileo to cover. He also showed that the pendulum, like the planets, sweep out equal areas in equal time. And this theoretical work did not get him into any trouble. It was what he did with his homemade telescope that landed him in hot water. He saw that there were mountains and valleys on the moon. In other words, it was a body just like the Earth that way. He found that Jupiter had moons. He discovered sunspots, and that sunspots moved, which means that the sun was changing too. Therefore, he discovered the heavens were not, not immutable and indestructible. All this decay and failure and destruction on earth, that was because of the devil, the fall, which Catholics had not figured out how to blame God for, as Calvinists had done. The heavens were perfect, a sign from God of what is in store for the saved. Galileo had figured out much of Catholic doctrine was wrong. And he was a little bit like Leonid Kantorovich, that mathematician who once wrote Stalin a nice letter to explain what Stalin was doing wrong. He shows up in the Slate Star Codex essay called Kolmogorov Complicity. Kwaka will put up a link to it. It's from October 2017. The whole essay is relevant to Galileo's problem. Galileo took his telescope to the pontifical court in Rome and eagerly explained to everyone what he had discovered and he showed them. They took the telescope out in the courtyard and looked, 
and many were impressed. He demonstrated the geometry that proved Copernicus was right, Ptolemy wrong, the non-existence of quintessence, and the fact that the heavens we can see are basically just like Earth down here. No, said Cardinal Bellarmine. Your mathematics proved no such thing, as Van Doren dramatizes it. Bellarmine was the chief theoretician and argued that it was not mathematics that described the world, but the scriptures and the church fathers. Take that, Galileo. Well, he went on to prosecute Galileo, and here they very obviously committed the logical error that I discussed in the pirate arc about the Armada, that historians keep doing this about God-slash-nature's defeat of the Armada. Just a quick refresher. Abstract concept A, if true, suggests that abstract concept B could be true, which threatens sacred value C. So proponents of C attack or ignore A to weaken B. Galileo's proofs were the truth of abstract concept A, which tended to indicate the truth of abstract concept B, that mathematics describes the universe and that the heavens are really nothing much different from what we have down here. And this threatens sacred value C, which is that the church is the ultimate authority over both the city of man and the city of God. And so they attacked aspects of Galileo's truths and simply declared abstract concept B, Galileo's conclusions, heretical. City of man and city of God are just metaphors from Augustine. Metaphors are not facts to be contradicted. They can only be more or less valid. Remember, Augustine is one of those early church fathers the church considered as describing the world as it is. Well, Bellarmine and the others seem not to have noticed that the city of man is a fucking metaphor. They exerted their power over Galileo and condemned him to house arrest and forbade him to publish. Obviously, as news of this spread, it was a disaster for the Catholic Church among scientists, or we should say people following the scientific project. Then the Church made Bellarmine a saint. No, they didn't. I'm serious. It was in 1930 he was canonized. I was really surprised to learn. He was a highly intelligent and accomplished Jesuit, and there are colleges and high schools and churches named after him. And yet it is really interesting to realize that Galileo's persecutor is a saint. That's too weird. Whenever I raise an issue like Cardinal Bellarmine making one of history's worst mistakes and then being sainted, it seems too much like a straw man attack on the Catholic Church. Without diving in and looking at both sides, I just want you to know that I'm aware of the problem. Casual virtue signaling is often despicable even when I do it. Uh, despicable is harsh, unworthy of respect, let's say. It has zero truth value in the real world. And with that, let's take a break here and episode 38 after Conversations with Cammie. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cammie, well, you've just heard episode 38, Charlie's Angel. Any reactions? Beginning, you were talking about how the church often slowed down the progress of science, and, and universities initially were a drag on early science. Later on, you talked about how Protestantism allows thriving sciences. And it wasn't that they were against science in some abstract way. It was that science kept coming up with 
ideas that went against the way they had decided that the world was organized and set up. And they decided it that way because, you know, they had their reasons for things like the, you know, the devil causing the fall or being involved in the fall and causing corruption and decay on earth. And the heavens were perfect. And so when that was discovered not to be true, their reaction was to persecute and prosecute and burn people. Copernicus, I, I think I'd like to get to know him on a, a deeper level. He sounds like an interesting guy and, and yeah, quite very. smart. With It must have been frustrating for him having to wait to publish until he was at the end of his life. I'm curious, though, did Kepler have with the religious any problems, difficulties due to the religious? Well, Kepler lived in Bohemia, which was a mixed religion area, even though it was ruled by a Catholic prince, except for the uh, short time that the elector Frederick and Elizabeth were the winter queen and winter king. And there was at least one period when Kepler was not allowed to research. They were suspicious that he had Calvinist leanings. Kepler was a little bit like Wycliffe. Remember, Wycliffe was able to get away with these really vicious attacks on the Catholic Church that hurt a lot because they were true. And Wycliffe was able to get away with it for a long time because he had a powerful protector, John of Gaunt. And Kepler also had a powerful protector. He was the astrologer to the imperial court. Wow. Yeah. So he had the emperor on his side. I guess with someone like an emperor on your side, it really it really helps your longevity. Helps. <laughs> yes. Keeps things a little cooler. So are there any other known incidents of religion suppressing discovery? I mean, there probably are unknown because it was suppressed, but... Right. It's like that searching for the absence of a, a negative, looking for a hole, looking for something that isn't there. There's a hell of a lot of smart people in Iberia and in Italy and in France and in Catholic Germany, and that these people had to leave the country. We'll get into Descartes next episode. He had to leave the country to publish. You would expect there to be self-censorship out of a sense of self-preservation if you were going to say something that would challenge the orthodoxy of the church or even if you were afraid it might. Next episode, we'll run into how Milton thought uh, that discovery as well as literature and art were be was being suppressed. I can understand their fears. Penalties were quite harsh if you went against the, the Catholic Church, it sounds like. Yeah, another one of the people that Bellarmine prosecuted was Bruno. And uh, Bruno was the guy that, um, there's that statue of him at the Campo di Fiore in Rome. He was tied to a pole upside down and set on fire. Not my idea of a good day. No, not a good day. Okay, Cammie, thanks for coming on to Conversations with Cammie. You're welcome. <laughs>